Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and your host for this weekly review of all the latest news and developments affecting the investment trust sector. My thanks to JP Morgan Asset Management for agreeing to sponsor the podcast, which as a result will now remain free for the foreseeable future. Moneymakers is an independent research and publishing venture with a mission to explain and inform. But I must remind you that for regulatory reasons, nothing you hear from any speaker today should be regarded as constituting individual investment advice. Remember also that past performance, while relevant, is not a reliable guide to future performance. Interest rates and bond yields are once again the big story of this week, with yields rising notably in both the US and the UK, and with a bit of helping hand from concerns about what's happening in China, sending equity markets into a week-long sell-off. The UK equity indices were down for five days in a row, with the S&P 500 following suit throughout the week, bar a late recovery of some sort on Friday afternoon when I'm recording this. NASDAQ down more than uh, the S&P 500, so tech stocks taking a bit of a hit as well. These moves were triggered, as I said, by economic data that implies the Bank of England and the Federal Reserve may have to raise interest rates again, perhaps to as high as 6% in the UK, because while the latest UK consumer price inflation figures did show a significant decline to just under 8%, core inflation and services inflation remains very strong. And the minutes of the last Federal Reserve interest rate setting committee, which only came out this week, showed also that members of that committee were divided about how much more they need to do. So further interest rate increases certainly not off the table there, even if, as uh, many expect, there'll be a pause in September. But pulling in the other direction were these concerns coming about the rate of economic growth in China, uh, which could have knock-on effects around the global economy not helped by news that one of the biggest property development companies in China, uh, there are plenty there which have become over-indebted and uh, struggling for survival. One of the biggest ones filed for bankruptcy protection in the US this week. That's not a healthy development. The housing and property market crisis in China has been flagged up by many for quite a few years now, and it's consistently been deferred, or at least hasn't happened. Uh, Some people think there are parallels with uh, what happened in the US and Europe in the run-up to the global financial crisis. So again, no shortage of worries. And this week, at least, while uh, the equity markets are always said to climb a wall of worry, they're able to shrug off short-term concerns and look through to better times ahead. That effect certainly wasn't visible this week in financial markets. Against that sort of background, it was not a surprise to see that the investment trust index was also down on the week, a little over 3% as it happened. And there were very few gainers visible, apart from either special situations, for example, Ediston Property, that was up around 6% on news of a possible sale of its portfolio, something we discuss later. And some debt funds did well in in response to these uh, higher bond yields. Notable also among the gainers was BH Macro, the hedge fund, which has had a very torrid time most of this year to date, but finally seems to have got something right with its macro positioning. Shares there up 3%. But on the other side of the ledger, we saw the losers were headed by the Digital Infrastructure Trust. They were up quite sharply a couple of weeks ago, but they've now retreated, uh, had a big price fall this week, while other notable losers included trust with a uh, marked growth style. So several of uh, Bailey Gifford's funds, Bailey Gifford UK, Bailey Gifford European and Bailey Gifford Japan, all amongst the biggest losers. And also 
not surprisingly, declines in the big China investment trusts. They got off to a roaring start this year, as everybody hoped that the end of lockdown in China would uh, give a boost to the economy. But that's not the way it's worked out. And they are now down on the year. Nearly 40 trusts out of the uh, more than 300 that I track on a regular basis were down by 4% or more this week. So that's a pretty sharp sell-off by anybody's standards. And I'm included there were commercial property and infrastructure trusts, typically down by between 3% and 4%. You know, hopes that we had reached the peak of the interest rate cycle and therefore that the derating of these trusts could stop have not yet been borne out. And looking at Gilts Market in more detail, we can see that there's now a range of yields across the entire UK Gilt universe in a range between 4.45% and 5.5%. So that's markedly higher than it was only a little while ago when some yields were, were down around 4%. So there have been significant moves in the gilt market. Index-linked gilts also, like their yields, the real yields you get on a government index-linked bond are now edging up as well, just over 1% now. More about the bonds and gilt markets you can hear in my latest, much shorter, you'll be happy to hear, video review. It runs to about 13 minutes, uh, which is available if you're a subscriber to the Money Makers Circle. I show a lot of charts there and track which issues are doing well and which are not and so on. Against this background, there's not actually a lot of news. I will be discussing what's been going on in the investment trust sector with James Carfew, the director of Quoted Data, the investment trust research company, in just a moment. Turning to the news, it's been another quiet week, it has to be said. I mentioned the news from Ediston Property, ticker EPIC, E-P-I-C, where press reports said that the company has agreed the sale of its entire portfolio to a US-listed property company called Realty Income. That's not been confirmed by uh, the trust itself, though you will recall that the directors themselves said a little while ago that they were in discussions over a possible deal, and those discussions were at an advanced stage. Uh, it's slightly unusual for this to break out in the media without an announcement from the company, but that's what's happened here. The shares were up, as I mentioned, around 6% on this news. Earlier this year, you will also recall that the board of Edison Property announced they had an initial strategic review and they were considering all sorts of options given this remains one of those trusts which are deemed to be sub-scale. As of the time of this recording, has a market cap of around $145 million. The shares here are still trading on a discount, though they have moved up quite sharply since the announcement of the strategic review back in 16th of March, when they were trading at 61.2p. You'll now find them trading at just a, a tad short of 70p. So there has been some improvement, but if the deal goes through at that price, it won't be a very significant premium to the share price before the announcement. We've seen, obviously, all the property trusts derate further since that strategic review back in March. But uh, the press reports certainly indicated that there would be a significant premium if this deal does actually get over the line. But this is a, a press report and, as I say, has not been confirmed. Elsewhere, we heard from Riverstone Energy, ticker RSE. This is the US private equity vehicle which invests mainly now in sustainable energy assets. It has changed its strategy from its earlier plan to invest mainly in shale oil. They've announced that they're going to hold a tender offer for up to around 30% of the shares in issue. That tender will be held at 578p, which was the closing price the day before the announcement, and represents uh, extraordinary, in some ways, 43% discount to the June net asset value. If this tender is fully subscribed, it means that uh, 
£80 million will be distributed to shareholders and those who tender in excess of their basic entitlement will have the uh, excess amount satisfied through a mix-and-match facility to the extent to which other shareholders do not tender their shares. If it's fully subscribed, the tender, according to analysts, will add around 18% to the net asset value of the trust. Although no directors are tendering shares, nor will any shares held by entities affiliated with the manager, the board said, will be tendered. It's subject to an extraordinary general meeting to be held on 27th of September, and the record date for submitting applications is the day before that, 26th of September. And the share repurchase, assuming it goes through, will take place on the 29th of September. In the market this week, and notwithstanding this news, the shares still closed at around 574p, according to the prices I'm looking at, which is pretty much bang in line with that tender. So even though the board of this trust is hell-bent on trying to eliminate the discount, uh, the market just doesn't seem to like this particular trust. And it hasn't responded to these latest announcement of what is essentially a buyback program with a positive price move. And since it started the buyback program in May 2020, that's just over three years ago, Riverstone Energy has repurchased more than 40% of its opening share capital. But still, it trades on this big discount. Elsewhere, we also heard from Aquila Energy Efficiency Trust, ticker AEET, whose shares did take up a little bit this week after the board announced that shareholders had approved changing the investment policy to a managed runoff of the portfolio, whereby the assets of the trust will be realised in what the company says is a prudent manner to return cash to investors and no new investments will be made apart from funding legal commitments to existing investments. This is after shareholders basically told the board that they did not want the trust to continue after a number of issues around deployment of its capital. The board did say, however, that it has been reviewing other strategic options, including proposals that could deliver greater value to its shareholders in, I quote, a shorter time frame than would otherwise be achieved under the managed runoff. So what this uh, seems to point to is that rather like Epic, the board here is testing the market to see if it can sell the whole portfolio in one go, which obviously would allow shareholders to exit in a speedier manner. We heard yet more words from the board and the management company of Thomas Lloyd Energy Impact, ticker TLEI, who've been slugging it out now for a few weeks, the manager and the board at loggerheads about the issue of one of the trust's big projects in India, which no longer appears to be viable. The managers and the board have different opinions about this, and the exchange of announcements, which has been pretty much one every day, has seen the managers saying that, uh, contrary to what the board has alleged, the board was provided with sufficient information to know about the issues that there were surrounding this big Indian investment before the point at which the board says it was notified. The board's stance has been that uh, the managers were holding back information about the problems that were facing this particular project and its viability. And they said this week that they'd had been contacted by a whistleblower from the other side who had basically supported their suspicion that they hadn't been told everything they should have been told. Something which is I also discussed with James Carthew in a moment. The manager then hit back by saying the board was totally lacking credibility and so on. More on that, as I say. Turning to results, there's only been one annual set of results this week that is of any note, and that is from Aberdeen New Dawn, ticker ABD, which reported a negative NAV total return of 6.8%, slightly worse than its benchmark 
Asia-Pacific ex-Japan index benchmark down 5.2% on the same metric. This is the trust that has agreed to merge with another Asian trust managed by Aberdeen, Asia Dragon Trust, where shareholders will be offered a cash exit when the two trusts are merged. Uh, So these results, while interesting in themselves, don't really have much more relevance since this trust is going out of business quite soon through the form of this merger, assuming shareholders ratify it. Turning to interims, we also heard from Witten, ticker WTAN, the multi-manager trust which sits in the global equity sector. Its interim report covered the six months to the 30th of June and was a good period for Witten. It's soaring its NAV total return rising by 8.7% against its composite benchmarks return of 7.2%. Uh, this is a trust which said that its outperformance uh, was helped by its greater exposure to the US market, which in turn was benefiting from the excitement over the disruptive potential of artificial intelligence, uh, which has driven strong returns in mega cap tech stocks. Andrew Ross, the chairman of this trust, offered his view that uh, central banks have lost a lot of credibility in their failure to anticipate the inflationary surge that we saw in last year. And therefore, he said, maybe slow to change course. I think that's uh, pretty much baked in. We've seen how determined the rate setters at the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England have been to, if you like, try and restore some of that credibility they lost by completely missing the onset of that inflation surge. So that sort of implies that interest rates may go perhaps higher than is justified. But uh, you can argue whether that's likely or not. Certainly the market view this week is that uh, that is indeed going to be the case. We heard also interim results from Georgia Capital, ticker GCAP, which reported an NAV per share up 8.2% over the quarter in local currency terms and up 3.3% in sterling terms. Uh, This trust is one that trades on an extraordinarily wide discount of 60% for a number of reasons which may or may not be justified. But the uh, trust itself has a strong track record and uh, continues to deliver good results. We also heard from Temple Bar, the UK Equity Income Trust, which has a market cap of around $680 which reported a NAV total return of 3.4% against their FTSE All Share Index 2.6% in the six months to the end of June. The dividend there was covered by its revenue return. Temple Bar is one of the trusts which formerly was one of the AIC's dividend heroes, but cut its dividend in the wake of the pandemic three years ago and has been rebuilding its dividend since then. We also had interims from Aberdeen Asian Income, ticker AAIF, another Aberdeen Asian trust, but not one involved in the merger we mentioned earlier. Here we saw the NAV total return of minus 3.7% which was uh, slightly worse again than its benchmark index, minus 2.4%. This board has a 5% discount trigger, and the board is committed to making more repurchases of shares, though it also said it intends to try and maintain its next-generation dividend hero status. Uh, These are trusts that have increased their annual dividends every year for at least 10 years, as opposed to the dividend hero's 20-year-plus of successive dividend increases. And we had updates also from two uh, renewable energy trusts, Bluefield Solar Income, ticker BSIF, and Next Energy Solar, ticker NESF. Both of these trusts have responded to the higher bond yields in evidence by putting up their discount rates, the discounts at which they use to value their portfolios, and that obviously had a negative impact on their NAVs, which in the case of 
Bluefield Solar was down just 0.4%, with the higher discount rate being offset by higher inflation and a strong operating performance. Uh, Bluefield Solar has been one of the most successful of the renewable energy trusts at maximising its uh, revenues from the sale of the electricity generated by its solar plants. Next Energy Solar Fund, by contrast, the NAV was down 4.4%, with the higher discount rates being the main contributor to that. Both these trusts, though, do make the point that their dividends are well covered by more than two times in the case of Bluefield Solar and between 1.3 and 1.5 times in the case of Next Energy Solar. That in turn is reflected in the different yields that these trusts offer, with Bluefield Solar offering a yield of around 7% and Next Energy a potential yield of as much as 9%. So this week it was my turn to catch up again with James Carfew, the former investment trust fund manager who is now a director of Quoted Data, the uh, investment trust research business. Feels a bit this week like the sort of dog days of August, James. We've seen the equity markets selling off and we've seen, well, basically not much happening except a kind of negative news. But um, what, what's your take on this? Uh, you're a veteran of many Augusts. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the, as markets get thinner in terms of liquidity, then the moves are sort of somewhat amplified I and mean, it's quite hard to read what's going to happen. The noise is all around the direction of interest rates, obviously. And there's been a lot of toing and froing on this recently. It does look to me in the States as though we're not far off the peak. I think that the Fed actually said something vaguely positive yesterday. And it's like sort of reading the runes on these things. In the UK, I think people are slightly worried that the core inflation is quite stubborn, even though the headline rate's coming down. And obviously, wage growth in private sector has been quite strong too. So I think those two things maybe mean that we've got a couple more rate rises to come in the UK. And obviously, it takes time for the pain of that to feed through into um, mortgages and things like that. So um, it doesn't bode too well. There's a quite a debate between different parts of the market as to whether we're going to get some kind of recession or not. I think the, the feeling generally seems to be that there, there won't be too bad in the States, but we could have a recession here at some point. But these are all unknowns, so we, we just have to, have to uh, wait and see how things pan out at the moment. Yes, I mean, a lot of people have been saying for a long time that the UK market is unloved and uh, nobody wants to own it and it's very cheap, so surely something must happen. But certainly the macro news from the UK is not looking too healthy. We could be heading back to stagflation, the, the kind of British disease of higher than everybody else's inflation and not much growth. And the prospect of a potential change in government coming up next yeah. year. And all of this is not helped by what's going on in China. So China is often said to be the engine of world growth and at the moment it's just not firing. So you've seen a resurgence there of worries about the property sector and some of the indebted companies that seem to be running into trouble. And exports have fallen and growth just isn't there. And it's got deflation, which is not particularly healthy. So people are starting to talk about China in the context of Japan post the bubble. So um, Japan, famously in the 90s, had this crazy bubble where property prices went mad. And then for decades afterwards, there was just no growth and no inflation. And people are wondering whether the same thing might happen to China now, which would be um, quite serious for the rest of the world, I think. Well, we've come a long way, haven't we, since the 1990s, the past 30 years, when uh, China was really not part of the global trading system at all. Now it's the thing to which everybody looks to drive economic growth around the world. And as you say, the data has been poor. The Chinese indices are off this week by about 5% or so at the time we're talking. So that is something to worry about. But of course, there's always things to worry about in the markets. <laughs> and we talk about the wall of worry and all the rest of it. And the fact remains that year to date, some equity markets, the US in particular, have been stronger than many people expected. 
and bond yields are still going up, which is not a normal combination. Some of us are so old that we can think back to 1987 when we had this same combination of rising <laughs> bond yields and soar away stock markets, and it was uh, it, it wasn't a good uh, it wasn't Didn't a good prognosis. Well. <laughs> but then, who knows? It's all a wall of worry. Let's talk about some of the news we have seen come out this week. We could start by talking about some more things that have come up in the general theme of consolidation on the one hand and the boards having to make decisions about discounts, control, capital allocation and so on. That's a sort of big theme of the year as everyone is derated. Why don't we kick off with Riverstone Energy, ticker RSE. It's changed its strategy quite recently, but it was a US sort of private equity style investor in energy. It's remarkable for many things, but it alienated investors many years ago by issuing shares at a discount, as I recall. And this week, they've announced they're going to offer a redemption opportunity for shareholders up to 30%, I think, of their share capital. By the time they finish that, if that goes through, they're going to have bought back about half their shares. So what do you think it is about this investor trust? They came to the market with high hopes, but it's been a big disappointment, hasn't it? It has, really. And it was all predicated on the growth of shale oil in the States. So it had a lot of investments in new companies or sorts of new versions of companies because it's been a long-standing investor. The management has been a long-standing investor in this sector for decades, really. And it was trying to exploit the growth of that. And obviously, with the oil price moving around a bit, that's gone in and out of favour. And that originally pushed it out to a discount. And for a while, some of its big holdings were really struggling with low oil prices. I think Moon Music changed. It felt it had to go more into renewable energy and, and the like. And so it gradually started morphing its portfolio across. Higher oil prices have given it ability to actually cash in some of those older things now. Some things have sort of had a bit of a mini recovery. So as you say, it, it has now freed up some cash. It's got about $123 million on the balance sheet. And it's planning to use about $100 million of that, about £80 million, to buy back shares with the current market cap, that equates to about just over 30% of the company. But that's an enormous discount. So basically, they're saying, well, we'll buy you back the shares, but we'll buy them back at the current market price, which is 578p. And that is a 43.5% discount to the NAV. If shareholders are prepared to sell at that level and the tender gets taken up in full, that's a massive transfer of value from the exiting shareholders to the ongoing ones. So I did some back of the envelope calculation this morning that I think they reckons that the NEV would go from about £10.23 to about £12.17 on the back of that. So <laughs> how badly do you need this cash? Are you really prepared to leave that much on the table? So I, I don't know what the take-up is going to be of this, to be honest. And if I was a shareholder, shareholders do have to get a vote on this. So it's not a done deal yet. I'd be pushing for them to improve the terms, to be honest. I think they're, they're being a bit mean. <laughs> so that meeting for shareholder approval I think is next month so it's time to think about it but you're right I guess from the trust point of view or the board's point of view if shareholders do take this opportunity unless you think that the NAV is completely wrong this does look like a bit of a no-brainer doesn't it for the board to do and, and shareholders by the same token unless they really have doubts about the NAV or the competence of the management this doesn't look like a thing you want to be doing particularly uh, sit tight I think yeah I suppose Riverstone Energy is an extreme example because it has been such a big discount for such a long time, despite all the buybacks that it's done. But it's not the only example of trusts which are having to confront what to do with their face with these very big discounts. One answer, of course, is that big discounts means the size of the funding market cap term goes down. And so that raises issues about scale and viability. We've heard a bit of an update about two of the Aberdeen Asian trusts which have been planning to get together. What have we heard and what, and what do you think that the impact of that will be? 
Yeah, it does all seem to be going ahead. We've just had results from Aberdeen New Dawn. They're not great. They uh, underperformed again. And actually, it's been outperforming Asia Dragon, which is his merger partner. But having said all of that, I, I do think it does make sense for these two to get together. So we're still waiting for the paperwork to be published on this. And I don't think it's very far away. But I do imagine that this is going to be just sort of not through by shareholders. I think it, it's going to happen. And a bigger Asian fund actually probably just restores Dragon to the status it used to have maybe a decade ago. So Edinburgh Dragon, as it used to be, was the biggest fund in the sector for a while. And it's just shrunk through buybacks. Pushing the two together will be an improvement. I think that having the ability to invest in Australia, which it doesn't have at the moment, which is going to come with the Aberdeen New Dawn merger, I think that's probably a good thing, a bit more flexibility. They're not planning to change the benchmark, which I'm not really on side with. I think they, they should change the benchmark to reflect that. So just use the Aberdeen New Dawn benchmark. But otherwise, I'm, I'm generally in favour of that. I think it's a good idea. And it obviously saves costs and improves liquidity. I think generally in the market, we've seen quite a lot of selling pressure from the big wealth managers that have been consolidating. And they are increasingly saying we need bigger and bigger and bigger funds. Otherwise, we, we, we just cannot hold these things. So I think from that point of view, it just makes perfect sense. And if, if that isn't enough to stem that tide, then that would help the rating, the discount rating. It's the same argument being used for the GCP infrastructure and GCP asset income merger. If we get it big enough, then hopefully the wealth managers will stop selling. Yeah, both managed by the same management house in both cases. And there are some potential cost savings there, of course. And I guess the other factor is back in the day, Aberdeen was well known for its Asian trusts. And in the 90s, when a lot of these things were launched, there was a lot of appetite for segmented Asian trusts and so on, and country-specific trusts as well. But I guess in this age we're now in, the need for those kind of finely differentiated vehicles is pretty small, frankly. And generally speaking, we're up with more general trust in, with uh, regional bias. Yeah, I think that's likely. It's, it's hard to read. I mean, the two markets that dominate that index now are China and India. And that's only going to get bigger and bigger, I think. I mean, I know what we're just saying about China, but um, definitely the, the Indian economy is growing so fast and the market's so strong. It's becoming more and more important within that uh, thing. So as long as they don't crowd out the others, because you've got some very exciting markets around there, in Indonesia and Vietnam and all this sort of stuff. So as long as those things still attract some interest from investors and people don't use just China and India as a proxy, I do think yeah, the whole region is looking interesting, definitely. I mean, there is a scope you can invest in sort of frontier trust as well, can't you, if you want something a little more exotic in there, which maybe we'll see, you know, a bit of a bifurcation there. Do you think the whole concept of an Asian trust as opposed to an emerging market trust or whatever still makes any kind of sense for most people? I mean, most people have Japan as a separate investment category. And I guess increasingly there's the opportunity to have China as a separate opportunity and similarly with India. So do you think that this kind of idea of an Asian trust per se has got long-term viability? Yeah, I do actually. I think people still, well, I mean, this is way generalising, but I think most people like to have a limited number of pots to allocate money to. And Asia is a sort of natural pot to put money into. Whether you do that through a pure China play or a pure India play or a pan-Asian fund is one thing. Where I'm increasingly doubtful of the usefulness of these funds is the global emerging market category, because that is so dominated by Asia now. It was a shame that we lost Aberdeen National American, because there are very few ways to get access to that market. Well, the only listed ways is the BlackRock one. And you can buy access to the Gulf through Gulf Investments. You can buy access to EMEA through 
the bearing emerging EMEA opportunities and the JP Morgan Fund. So you can buy slices of all of this. And I'm not sure of the usefulness of global emerging markets funds anymore. Well, that's an interesting topic. Perhaps we'll come back to that another time. I think the general issue about uh, you know how people invest these days, particularly now that it's not institutions who are driving this in the main, it's mainly uh, wealth managers and private investors who are driving it. Uh, probably in another 10 years' time, things may look very differently across the universe. Let's talk about something else then. Let's get out of the way the... <laughs> The very unsavoury story of Thomas Lloyd Energy Impact, ticker TLEI, where we've got a situation where the board and the investment manager are going at each other like hammer and tongs. <laughs> one of them wants to, a continuation vote to pass, the other wants a continuation vote to fail, and unusually the one who wants it to fail is the board. So what do you make of the latest two? And we don't know, go through all the kind of he said, you said sort of things, but uh, <laughs> we, it has become quite extraordinary, really, hasn't it? We've even had a whistleblower now brought into the equation. So... What do you make of all that? I read the whistleblower stuff and it seemed really damning. So basically, that announcement was saying that a whistleblower had come to the board and said that there were various times when they had board meetings, I think in August and October and December, where the whistleblower felt that the manager should have been telling the board that it was quite obvious that this solar rise project in India wasn't viable and the costs had gone up so much that they would have to put significant equity injection in. So the whistleblower was saying this was known internally within the manager and the manager kept putting a brave face onto the board and saying, no, there isn't a problem, there isn't a problem. And it's quite a sort of detailed statement from the board and laying out all of this. At the end of the, that day, I was like, oh, well, this is cast iron now. It looks like somebody should be suing somebody if the, the manager's been lying to the board. But the manager came out and refuted all of that the next day and said, yes, 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 we go into the board, board packs, it was all there. Obviously, we've got no idea of the, the truth of all this. I think that's the sort of thing that should be quite easy to verify. But I think there's a bigger picture thing here. One way or another, that investment in India has gone horribly wrong. And even though the manager keeps trying to put a sort of gloss on it, saying solar module prices have come down and then maybe it's more viable than it was, I still don't think it's going to be a sort of attractive investment for the fund. And that casts a shadow, I think, over the whole thing. And to the extent to which the manager was on top of this, I was saying to somebody else today, I mean, at the very least, you'd have thought that these investments would be completely ring-fenced so that if one of them went under, there was, there's no comeback onto the, the rest of the portfolio. That doesn't seem to be the case here. And because of all of that, I find it hard to imagine that this fund has a future with the same manager. I know that's a, that's a harsh thing and maybe they feel it's not deserved, but realistically, I cannot see it ever trading back at asset value and raising more money. And because of that, I'm definitely siding with the board and saying vote against continuation. I'm hopeful that once that vote's passed and you know, if you assume the continuation vote fails and the board just get it to choose what happens next, first thing, they can bend the manager without paying the compensation, which is a big tick in the box, really, because they, I think they had quite a generous notice period that would have been quite a good big payout for the team taking taken over early instead of this. But a continuation vote, that all falls away. And then if the board can find another manager that is credible enough to take what the good stuff from the portfolio and raise more money for what is, a, I still think, a fairly good idea, then the fund still has an ongoing life. And if that isn't possible, then we're back to the situation of maybe we, you know, just to get some 
wound up. And in that situation, maybe. We've seen actually with Quillet Energy Efficiency, I think it was yesterday, that they're saying that they are looking at selling their entire portfolio. Maybe they won't get any V for it, but, but it's one way of providing fairly instant liquidity rather than a long, slow runoff. That sort of thing with this portfolio would get you cash back quite quickly. You have to think at the moment, if they could publish the accounts, which is the whole reason it's been suspended and that uh, they haven't been able to do that, the board are adamant that it's not going to get published by the September. But if they could publish them and they could relist, it, the whole thing would just drop to a massive discount. I, I just cannot see that closing unless something radical happens. I agree with you totally. I can't see a way back with this one. But, of course, there is slight complication in the kind of curious share register of this particular trust. We're still talking about Thomas Lloyd Energy Impact here, which features the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, God bless them, part of our UK government, with 18%. And I noticed also Brevin Howard have a big stake as well. And the managers have a big stake as well. So there's three sort of big blocks of shares, which uh, will be decisive, I guess, in the vote. And I guess that adds an element of uncertainty to this whole thing, an added level of uncertainty to this whole thing. Yeah, it, it does. Again, I'm a bit uncomfortable about this because we've had situations in the past where a manager's controlled sufficient votes to block something that all of the minority or most of the minority shareholders want to happen. And it's not a good look to sort of trap people into a fund against their will. So if it came down to the, the manager's votes swinging that, I would still think they should be offering an exit to the people who want out. Yeah. I think in a matter of sort of equity, they should. Whether they will, of course, I don't know. Whether they'll fall foul to, uh, you know, treating customers fairly or whatever it is, I don't know whether that's part of the thing. Or the new consumer duty, we'll have to see. Well, you mentioned Aquila Energy Efficiency. So there's another example of a board pursuing one opportunity anyway, which is, as you say, in the interest of speed. Because the worst thing about when these things go wrong or aren't viable, you get stuck for years waiting for things to happen. We don't want to mention dreaded name of Woodford, where people are still waiting, you know, six years on or whatever it is to get the final piece of whatever's left back. And we've got the same problem for Home Reader, of course, the shares also suspended. But let's look at another one. Another board has been doing something not dissimilar, which is Ediston Property, ticker Epic. We haven't actually heard from them yet as we speak, but there have been a lot of press reports saying that they are about to sell their whole portfolio to an American real estate company. Epic has been trading on a discount, obviously, and the board decided it was too small to carry on. It didn't get much interest initially, but um, seems to say that they found somebody who would take the thing on. So without any board confirmation, we're into a kind of guessing game whether that will actually happen. And if so, at what price it will be and therefore whether it's uh, interesting. The shares have moved up this week. What do you make of that situation? It's an interesting story. You do wonder where these stories come from, because this is massively insider information that somebody's leaked to a, a newspaper. I think it was a newspaper in the States and then it got picked up by CityWire here. And it's interesting, given the newspaper speculation, that Edison hasn't actually commented on it, with the veracity of it, but um, they probably should do. Anyway, the, basically, the story is saying that the lead bidder is a massive US REIT, Real Estate Investment Trust, called Realty Income. It's not put a price on what it might be paying, but the implication is it is the highest bidder, I think, rather than any kind of synergy type argument. Um, it was interesting because it named all the kind of underbidders too. So New River REIT was supposed to be looking at it, Custodian Property Income REIT, Aberdeen, but it didn't know which of the two Aberdeen funds or maybe it's a standalone thing. And obviously quite a few people have been casting a slide all over it. It's not a bad company really. I mean, obviously it's a massively out of favour part of the market, the whole retail. But I think it's got a reasonably good portfolio. We, well, sorry to see it go, but it does look like it's, it's well on the way out. So we're just going to have to wait and see now. 
looking across the, the whole commercial property sector in the round with all its various different types of trust. If that one goes, we'll have seen that will go along with Industrials REIT and Civitas being taken private effectively, which does suggest there is at least some value. And these aren't among the best in the sector, these trusts, or you could make a case for Industrials REIT maybe. But I mean, it does suggest there is actually some value there, at least in the eyes of beholders in other parts of the world. And that should be encouraging for uh, shareholders, which have taken a big hit this year, well, the last 12 months in the property sector. But this week, they've been selling off again in, in, in general. <laughs> and it is strange, because we keep looking at these things thinking, oh, well, if somebody's prepared to come out and bid for something like Civitas, surely the whole sector will run in it, because it's quite obvious that there is interest there. And then all the shareholders just capitulate and take the first offer, which, when, you know, I think we talked about this before. I was just very annoyed by it, but there we go. But since there seem to be winning buyers and winning sellers, you think now there's quite good likelihood that there are going to be more bids. And so it just seemed perverse that the discounts are still widening. But I think it might come back down to this wealth manager selling. It's just the scale issue, you mean? They just don't want things that are too small, basically. Yeah, well, that and also... All sorts of investors, not just the wealth managers. It was never attractive for a long time to put your money into bond funds. And now they offer quite decent yields. And I think there's a quite a big asset allocation shift going on from alternatives like property and you know, all the other bits and pieces into bonds. And if you're an income fund and, and you don't offer more than the yield on cash, then <laughs> you're really what your prospects. You're struggling to get attention, yeah. But the spreads don't look very bad in a number of cases. But I think it's probably more to do with the fact that this is a short-term move by people going into high-yielding gilts and so on, which uh, while they try and work out where we're going from here, I think that's probably part of it. People just don't know whether this is going to plateau, interest is going to plateau at this level, whether they're going to go down. If we get a recession, they'll go down. And that'll be bad for property trust, I guess, as well. You could make that argument. Yeah, it's a bit of a conundrum. I think it's got a lot to do with the, the speed and scale of the movement we've seen in in interest rates, and therefore people are sort of scratching their heads and sort of rushing into the safety of short-term gilts and so on before deciding what to do. Well, I hope so anyway, but uh, if you're a big long-term investor in property or infrastructure, you would surely be looking at some of these things at these prices, particularly given the apparent willingness of boards and shareholders to sell up at the first sign of a bit of interest. Cynically, if you can buy something on a big discount and then value it at asset value because it's no longer listed, <laughs> recognise an immediate gain. That sounds like quite an attractive thing for a lot of asset managers. Yeah, well, we couldn't possibly think that. That would be an unworthy thought of you, James. Surely that wouldn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> so what about the renewables? We heard a couple of updates so far this week from Bluefield Solar Income and also from Next Energy Solar Fund. What do you make of those? The Bluefield Solar update was a little more positive than the one from uh, Next Energy Solar. But the Solar Trust, they've sold off again this week. What are your thoughts on those two and the renewables in general? So the reason why the NEV is tracking back is largely down to the hike in the discount rate that they used to value their future cash flows. So they're recognising that guilt yields have gone up, interest rates have gone up, and therefore the sort of risk-free rate, if you like, has gone up. And therefore, they have to reflect that in valuations. And so both of them have put up their discount rates by 0.75%, 75 basis points. And that pushes down the value of their future cash flows and reduces the NAV. It's not a massive, massive hit. I think it was about 4.95p or something in Next Energy's case, maybe slightly less in Bluefields. But nevertheless, that's the negative. And then 
the offsetting stuff this month wasn't quite as big. So we, we still got higher than expected inflation. So that's positive. We've still got, for the most part, slightly higher power prices than expected. Although it's interesting because Next Energy put some sort of um, numbers out. And it does look as though they're saying that power prices might be slightly higher now, but lower going forward, I think. What the big difference was, it seemed to be that the Bluefield had managed to sell its power forward through power purchase agreements at much higher prices. And they therefore locked in the, the higher prices that were there around earlier in the year last year. And that added massively to its cash flow. So there, there was an uplift from that. And it also feeds through into the valuations. So that was the reason that it outperformed Next Energy. All of these things, discount rates, all these very different moving parts that go into making up these NEVs, they're all a bit subjective. But it's interesting because what Next Energy is currently trying to do is sell some of its portfolio. So within its um, NEV announcement this week, it had an uplift from the completion of its White Cross unsubsidized solar plant. Nice tick, but it's also put that up for sale as part of a portfolio of five unsubsidized plants. So it's going to be really interesting to see what price it gets for those and how that is reflected in the NAV. If they sell them for more than they're valued at in the NAV, that's it's a huge tick in the box. But if they have to sell them at a discount, then that's negative for the whole sector. They basically said, watch this space, we're going to make an announcement on this later on in the year. So we're going to have to wait and see. So this is, again, an interesting example of board strategy. I think in case of Bluefield Solar, the way they manage their prices has been, I guess, one of the bull points that they would make. That's been one of their strengths ever since they were IPO. They were among the first to IPO 10 years ago, and they got a long track record. And Next Energy Solar, I mean, it's not one of these uh, trusted subscale or anything, but it uh, they both trade on big, big discounts now, getting on for 20%, I think, in both cases. And uh, Bluefield Solar offers 7.5% yield, uh, Next Energy at 9% yield which is the kind of level that you think something's going to happen at 9%, don't you? <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. And these, those yields, they're so well covered by cash flow and onyx. So I think the next energy one, they're saying sort of 1.3, 1.5 times. Bluefield is saying twice. So, I mean, so screams by to me, but, you know, I can't say that out loud. <laughs> I have now. Yeah. So we have to look back and we'll find out in a year or two whether this is a sort of market failure or whether the market is anticipating something which we currently can't see. And I guess if that is something, it'll be something to do with the long-term prospects for reinvesting capital in this sector. But you'd have thought with net zero, that was still pretty positive. But we'll have to see. Or maybe there's just going to be no sun anymore. What else can we pick out for briefly from any results or updates we've had? We've talked about RIT before, ticker RCP. They put out their latest NAV, um, not particularly significant, but um, have you any reason to change your view about them and whether you think they're still good value at the trading at a very unusually high discount for them? Yeah, no, the, I mean, the discount is as wide as it's ever been. And I do have a kind of long-term faith in this. I think we talked about this before, but basically it's got a lot in unlisted stuff. Within that, it's got a fairly high exposure to growthy type things. It's more the kind of growth capital than sort of traditional private equity. And that's exactly the sort of thing that's been sold off quite aggressively. So were you valuing on listed comparables that, that, that's been pushing that, those private valuations down? I mean, from a risk-adjusted basis, they deliberately avoided investing in those sorts of things within the listed market so that they wouldn't have too much exposure to that area. That's not helped because it meant it didn't hold all these sort of AI-heavy stuff that, that's actually been performing quite well. So it sort of missed out there. 
but you'd like to think that the private stuff it's got is just as good as the listed stuff that everybody else is, is marking up and it'll all come right in the end. And I'm still an investor in it and um, still sticking by with it. That discount will come down. They're buying back shares very aggressively and at some point that will start to know the discount. Yeah, it's just an unusual experience for them. And I think it's taking a bit of time for them to realise that they, the mighty RAT, could be out of favour. That's not something that happened for a long time. And then finally, what about HG Capital Trust, another long, long veteran of the private equity space, investing in sort of techie things mostly, incredible track record. But you could buy them on a big discount now today, or for them anyway, a big discount. They've uh, done some realisations which look positive. They think they sold about three things recently, which, you know, well above NAV. This is the kind of trust that if you are an investment trust investor, you want to stick around with, don't you? Yeah, definitely. It's not obvious why that discount's widening. I suppose it's just because everything else is. But the underlying portfolio seems to be doing quite well. So the thing they sold this week was a thing called Team System, which is a software business. It's very concentrated in, in sort of business software type companies. But these are the sorts of things. I think somebody I was talking to about, this name, Boring IT, so it's the technology that produces cash generation and you know earnings and profits and stuff, the good stuff, if you like. And they seem to have a remarkable track record of investing in these things and, and growing them. So I think it's just a partial realisation and there's, there's a small NAV up left associated with that. But these things just keep ticking along. They, they keep having more and more of these announcements and the NAV just keeps ticking up. Again, it's another one that I hold and one that I like and I will just stick by it regardless of what the discount does. I mean, unless it is very well, I might top it up, but we'll see how we go. Well, that's the challenge for everybody, of course. I mean, I face the same. When looking across the whole field, it will be astonishing if all these discounts are right on any kind of <laughs> sustainable long-term basis, because eventually they will get rationalised away if it was to persist for a long time, you'd think. Though, actually, if you think back to when interest rates were last at these sort of levels, most investor trust traded at a discount. And whether those things are correlated or not is, is a question. More likely it was, you know, back in the day, more than 20 years ago, uh, boards couldn't do share buybacks and so on. And so discounts tended to persist for a whole variety of reasons. Indeed, I remember sitting at business school, earnestly debating why do investment trusts always trade at a discount? And there were kind of academic papers written about it. So what do you think about that? Is it to do with interest rates and bond yields and the general state of the world? Or is it actually just to do with the fact that investment trusts back in the day, you weren't able to do a lot of the things that we've been talking about today that boards are doing? Yeah, there's been a huge dislocation that's not ratings across the board. There's this wealth management consolidation is part of it. The shift from growth to value, the rise in interest rates and, and the impact on discount rates. There, there are lots of reasons why everything's sort of unloved. It does feel in several cases has gone too far. And it's interesting that there have been already been bids. I think there could be more. I wrote an article this week, actually, about arbitrages. Because back in the day, when there were big discounts around, that there were these fairly aggressive hedge funds, arbitrages coming in and taking pot shots at things on big discounts. And we haven't seen that yet, but there do seem to be some around. The one that I've, I found was a thing called Saba Capital, S-A-B-A. I sort of had to dig around and was what it might hold and start that in the article. It seems it's worth your origin. But um, I've been told since that it might have like as much as a billion quid invested in the sector which is quite scary if you think about it. So maybe it's preparing itself for uh, to actually sort of raise its flag and, and start having a, a go at some of these funds on big discounts. If that starts to happen, I think that discounts will rattling fairly quickly because other people will jump on the bandwagon. 
And then it's just a long slog then about how you manage these people off the register. You know, we saw it all before. Remember when Elliot had to go at Alliance Trust, dim distant past. They got out in the end. I'm not sure how much money they made out of it, but it did transform Alliance Trust for the better. It's not always a bad thing to have these people looking around. Indeed. And uh, while we talked about the fact that a number of boards are doing things to try and improve the situation as far as discounts are concerned, there's nothing quite like a knock on the door from a possibly rather aggressive uh, activist manager to get you to do something. So maybe, yeah, it, in, in the Darwinian world we live in, maybe that's uh, that's a positive. Yeah, it, it's not a bad thing. I mean, we get very sentimental about trusts, especially when they've been around for hundreds of years and, you know, all this sort of stuff. But they are just a means of making money. And it is quite easy to make money from narrowing a discount. And then if you're invested in it and, and you manage to profit from that, then um, that's not a bad thing. <laughs> Absolutely not. Well, on that note, I think that uh, makes a very good point of which to pause. I mean, for better or worse, we are living in a world where we've got massive derating of investment trusts and a lot of them, even very uh, illustrious names trading on uh, big discounts up to 20% or 40% or even, well, there aren't many illustrious ones trading on 50%, but there are some. We haven't talked about Georgia Capital, for example, which is a very interesting vehicle, which I think is trading on a 60% discount, which is uh, interesting. But uh, on that note, well, we'll leave it like that and we'll wait to see what happens uh, as we move back into the uh, more active period of the fourth quarter and what transpires. So thank you, James, and um, look forward to speaking again soon. Thank you. My fingers are crossed. We'll see how we go. <laughs> thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.